Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about Sam Mendes' new film, 1917. The World War I drama uh, recently went into wide release after opening in limited, re- limited release at the end of 2019. And the film is on quite a roll. It's been a hit at the box office, and it's been a hit on the awards circuit. It won the Golden Globe for Best Director, for Best Drama, and it recently won the Producers Guild Award for Best Film of the Year, which is a noted harbinger of success at the Oscars for winning Best Picture. So we will get into the awardsiness of it all, but we first wanted to talk about the film itself. Um, for those who haven't heard about 1917, the film is a World War One drama that focuses on two soldiers played by George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman, and they are tasked with a mission to deliver a message to stop an attack that's, an, that's actually a trap, and if the attack goes forward, 1,600 men will die, among them uh, one of the soldier's brothers. Uh, and the hook of the film is that it's all made to look like it's one shot. Uh, there are ta- there are cuts. They're just hidden, uh, except for one. Um, but even then, it's all made to sort of be experiential. You're sort of attached at the hip of these guys as they sort of go on this odyssey uh, to deliver this message. And um, for me, it was one of my favorite films of last year. It was it's my third favorite film, uh, uh, and I just I really enjoyed it. Um, because, and I don't know if joy is the right word when talking about a war film, but I was really um, taken with the approach to do it in one shot. Not because I felt it was a gimmick or like, oh, it would be boring otherwise, but because when you look at World War I, it is the first mechanized war. It is, the, it is a war that is a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, war has not really functioned that way until World War One, and that mechanized nature gives it a relentlessness. You know, it's not like, oh, we'll gather my troops on this side of the field, and then we'll gather your troops on this side of the field, and then you'll we'll charge at each other and see who lives. Pistols uh, at dawn. Pistols at dawn. Yeah, it's like, and not not to like you know be like, oh, the good old days when we were firing cannonballs at each other, <laughs> but there was sort of an order and sort of a regimented nature. To war, whereas World War One is trench warfare because you have planes, you have tanks, you have uh, these sort of mechanized instruments of death. So when you take that mechanized feel, it creates this relentlessness. And World War One is relentless, just sitting in the trench, just waiting, you know, to to even get a few inches, you know, in in terms of territory. The 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 nature of warfare. It drastically changes with World War One. They called it the Great War at the time because they could not conceive of doing that shit again. <laughs> and I and have, yet. and yet, <laughs> boy, the twentieth century, folks, really just bang up job by everyone. We all, <laughs> we all crushed it. Um, you know, the it, there was this relentless nature to it. So when you film it that way, when there are no cuts, when there are, is no reprieve, when when you are stuck there. That, to me, channels the character of the conflict. I would not shoot necessarily, like, if they, if Sam Mendes had made, like, a movie about, like, the Revolutionary War or, like, the War of 1812 or something like that. Like, if he had shot that film as one take, that I'd be a bit more dubious about. I'd be like, well, how does that convey 
the larger conflict. But I think for World War One, it does a really strong job, just in the same way that I think Dunkirk did a very strong job with its sort of different timelines and how yeah. that conveys the character of a war that's being of a, of a particular conflict that's being waged land, air and sea. And to sort of show those different timelines and how they converge. Again, it's not... I think there are filmmakers who can who can fall for gimmicks. Um, I don't think 1917 is one of them. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very experiential in nature. And that's... Uh, I like the film as well. It, it didn't make my top 10, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I like the, I like the experiential aspect of it, um, which I think Dunkirk is also another experiential film. It's not... It's not a film that's really trying to tie together narrative that that much. It's more about putting you in the shoes of those soldiers um, on beach, on at sea, and in land and in air um, uh, to kind of experience what it was like. And I think 1917 goes one further by putting you in the real time experience of this war um, and of that relentlessness. And I think, I mean, the film does a really great job of just really kind of showcasing what this war was like when you're going through the trenches. And I, I think it's really well written. I, I mean, some people have kind of stuffed their noses at the, the film getting a screenplay uh, nomination. But I like, I mean, that's that's exposition through action where they're going through the trenches and you're you're hearing, seeing, almost smelling what it's like, how long they've been down here in this trench. Um, the fact that they've been living here just waiting and waiting and waiting uh, and how horrendous the conditions are. Um, and then obviously the crossing of no man's land, you get to see kind of the aftermath of the battles up there. Um, and then going into, uh, you know, the, um, the, the enemy territory and going underneath into the bunkers. Um, there were just a lot of different, there are many more avenues of the war that the film explores that I, ex than I expected. Um, because you're traversing, because it's playing out in real time, I didn't necessarily ex expect it to go to so many different places and show off so many different facets of this war. Um, but it does. And, and I think, you know, I think that's what makes it special. I, I don't understand the, I mean, I guess for me, if you take away the one shot thing, if you add in cuts, does the story still work? I don't think it works as well. Um, I don't necessarily think it's as powerful as impactful. I think it's tied together, but I don't, I don't think that makes the one-shot thing a gimmick. I just, I just think it, it's, it's intrinsically tied to what this film is. Um, that idea of experiencing it all in real time is the point of the yeah. movie. To me, that's sort of like being like, well, you know, Memento being in reverse is a gimmick. I'm like, no, it's to put you in the mindset of your yeah. protagonist, just like 1917 is to put you in the mindset of your protagonist. So there, you know, this notion that films have to be this sort of they have to be conventional, and if they're not conventional, they are therefore gimmicks. I, I don't buy that. I think there there are gimmicks sometimes in filmmaking, but I just, again, I don't think this is one of them. Um, I would also say that, you know, I, I would agree with you that the film is surprisingly multifaceted in what it portrays, even though it is sort of tethered at the hip to these, to these characters. Um, I did see one critique that sort of the film is not is avoids the messy politics of world war one, which to me is sort of beside the point. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, what did you like? Oh, but you know, when are they going to talk about the assassination of the, of Archduke Ferdinand? I'm like, well, it's not going to come up. <laughs> um, you know, and the thing here, here's the thing though. Here's the thing. If you want that movie, that movie already exists. It's called paths of glory. It's been around for a while. 
it's fantastic. You can watch it now. So the, the notion that like, if not for 1917, we would have explored this, like it was explored. This is a different kind of story that they're telling. And it doesn't, and, and also I would say that, you know, just because it doesn't engage with the larger politics, I would say it shows the consequences of these larger politics. You have these two guys who are just trying to survive. Like, and that's what, that's, they are just regular soldiers. They're not captains. They're not, you know, decorated veteran. I mean, one, you know, Schofield at one point says, you know, he just traded his medal away because he just didn't need it. It's a scrap of ribbon and a piece of tin. And I think that's some important perspective on sort of the war machine that they're they're a part of yeah it's the it's bringing to light the human cost of war and i think that's uh uh depressingly an evergreen concept exactly yeah like i mean <laughs> you would say like oh do we really need another war film to tell us that war is bad and i would say tune on turn on cnn where they're like yeah we're horny for war and be like yeah <laughs> we actually do need a film that says war is bad because there are a lot of people who are interested in war as long as they don't have to fight in them it has literally been a century since the events of this movie, and we're still repeating the same things. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's evergreen. But I also, I also like the idea of the movie as historical document, and and that's something where, you know, I understand people having qualms with Schindler's List, and we did a big podcast on Schindler's List, um, which I quite enjoyed, um, just kind of hashing that out and having that longer discussion, but. There are criticisms that the movie is too triumphant at the end or too overly maudlin or overly sentimental. I still think it's, it's, it's a pretty stunning piece of work as a historical document, as a reminder of something that actually happened and here's what it looked and felt like. And I think 1970 does the same. You know, we're, we're heading into an era where, you know, the, the veterans of World War II are, are quickly dwindling away. And that's incredibly sad. And I think films like this, uh, although this is World War One, I, I still think that, you know, just as a piece of history, as a way to remember history, as a way to experience history aside or apart from uh, a history book, um, I think can have really great value. I, I agree, especially for World War One, which I has never, especially in the United States, has never really gotten the attention because we weren't Excuse largely... Excuse me, sir. Have you seen War Horse? I have, <laughs> sadly. That, uh, that boy and his horse had lots of adventures throughout World War II. One of my favorite war horse jokes when uh, I think it was uh, Vince Mancini said this. It's like my favorite part in War Horse is when they're signing the armistice and the horse is like, "Dur, hey." <laughs> the horse doesn't know he's in war. <laughs> anyway, it's weird that that movie exists because it, I just don't. I think a PG thirteen World War One film is at odds with itself moving a past war horse the act of that movie take place on a farm i think so yeah <laughs> um, I need to read war horse. let's do a war horse podcast let's not let's not we talked about didn't we talk about war horse on our spielberg podcast we i'm sure have. we did but i haven't seen it since it came out neither have i but i'm okay with that it's um, on Netflix. we should do a war horse podcast don't threaten people with that don't threaten people <laughs> with that so anyway back to 1917 yeah no i think it's important to sort of be experiential and sort of to pull people into that trench and to sort of show what it's like especially for americans who are more familiar with world war ii because we played a larger role there in that our role for world wars is to come in at the end and claim all the credit <laughs> Um, that's fun. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, the thing about, about, you know, this film is that I think 
I think it sort of manages to walk the line between you can ha- do a heroic action with removed from glory. And I think that's a difficult line, especially at the, especially, you know, in, you know, the scenes where he's running or, but, but really for me, I think it's more about the human effort of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the characters and just to get up and to keep going and they have to do it or else people die. Like otherwise yeah. 1600 people of, of their, of their brothers in arms will die and that's it. And that's all it is from their perspective. They're not being like, well, the politics of this is very, you know, messy. And you know, like, I mean, that's a conversation for another time. And it's a conversation that's worth having, but I don't think I didn't, I didn't walk out of 1917 and I don't, I'd be surprised if a lot of people walked out of 1970 being like, man, war is fucking dope. I should join one of those. Yeah. I should go to war because it's awesome. And I could be, I could do something really cool in war. Like I just, it doesn't, there are films that I do feel kind of walk into that recruitment ad territory. I definitely think that's the thing that can happen. I don't think that's the case here. No, I think it's, you know, again, I think it's showing the human cost of war. And I think it is more in common with Saving Private Ryan in terms of, you know, what men do for their fellow men. Right. Um, although Saving Private Ryan does, you know, as kind of the ultimate World War II film, it does get into the politics. I mean, the, the, the characters are having those discussions as they're sitting around. Um, but that's because there's more than two people in the movie. Um, and this, like, I just think the ticking clock conceit is so smart. Um, that the movie begins and immediately they're given a mission so you know what they have to do there's emotional stakes so it's the brother of dean charles chapman's um character um Blake. who i can only assume yeah um who uh yeah i won't spoil it here but there's a fun connection there because uh, i was about to make a game of thrones joke um but uh and uh and there's the ticking clock aspect. You know that they have got to go. Like, they have to go immediately. So you go through the trenches, you meet the hot priest, um, and then they get up on into no man's land. And it's just a, a really, I mean, it's relentless, as you said, and, and kind of mirroring the relentless aspect of World War One. But especially in the second half of the film, it, it has these really kind of poetic um, sequences and scenes um, that almost take on kind of a mythic quality uh, to it that I that I found really beautiful, and I think the the ending of the film is really poignant and and um, hit me emotionally um, in kind of the way that I feel, think the film intended intended yeah, to. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't. I, I like that the film is not. It it understands that war is evil and it's this terrible innovation. But it's never nihilistic. It's never that the world is over or that there aren't things worth fighting for. And I think that's an yeah. important I think that's an important distinction to make when when making a war film. And it's again, it's a difficult way to to make that point because you don't want to be like, well, war isn't all bad. I'm like, no, it's all bad. But we can't just because the world is at war, that does not mean that the world itself is broken, that there aren't moments of beauty or moments of humanity or or moments of of kindness. There are all those things exist there. You know, you you can't just say humanity is this one thing. And I think by casting a wider net or, or casting its eye towards a larger picture, it makes the immediacy of those events feel realer it doesn't they don't feel one-dimensional and constrained and there to make a point they feel part of a larger world and therefore more immediate yeah i i think that's true as well um 
Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, as soon as the film ended, and I saw it in, I think, late November, early December, um, I really immediately wanted to see it again. I think it's also just a really great cinematic theatrical experience, Mm -hmm. um, which I think a lot of people are hungry for these days. It's something best experienced in a dark theater where, um, you know, you can really behold the beauty and the majesty of uh, Roger Deakins' cinematography, who, I mean, let's be honest, Deakins is kind of the star of the show here. Um, what he's able to pull off is insane. And I kind of went into the movie expecting to start counting cuts, all the invisible cuts I could see. But, you know, after they get the mission, I was just so wrapped up in the movie, I forgot to keep track. Because <laughs> it's so thrilling. Like, it, and it's so seamless. There are no, I mean, there have been a lot of one-shot movies and, and stuff like Rope and, and stuff like Birdman where you're like, oh, yeah, there's a cut there and there's a cut there. And, you know, you swoop around there. Um, 1917, I genuinely don't know how they do it sometimes, which kind of, uh, signals to me that, you know, this movie might, could win, or maybe is deserving of the best visual effects Oscar, because I imagine there was a lot of work done. Well, I mean, you've seen it in the trailers. I mean, the plane crash scene, like, yeah, how? (laughs) (laughs) No idea. No idea. I have no idea how. And I, I interviewed the co-writer and, uh, she was talking about how, like, you know, when they... So they had to kind of edit it while they were going to make sure whatever they were shooting the next day was going to line up and match up. And especially if they were doing a scene where there was an invisible cut, it needed to pick up where that left off, but also pick up the intensity of where that scene left off. So you couldn't just give, you know, five or six takes of varying emotional degrees and then leave it to the editor to decide which take to use in the cutting room and which one goes best with the next scene and the next sequence and, you know, the other half of the, whatever, the other side of the camera, whatever's going on over there. Um, it's all happening in, in a single camera, in a single shot. So it all has to track. And that's why I think, I mean, I think some people were like, oh, yeah, there's no way this uh, deserves the best editing nomination. But I, I actually think it does uh, because the editing is invisible and seamless. You can't see it, um, which is the point of most editing. But I don't know. I think it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. I, I guess at this point, since we're talking about like best editing and best visual effects, we should talk about its Oscar chances. Um, we should. Because I don't really, also I don't want to start, like, I feel like the more I talk about the film, the closer I get to spoiling it. Yes. And uh, I don't want to do that because there are some pretty big surprises in 1917 uh, that I think only make the film even better, but I don't yeah. want to spoil them. Uh, and, and so, again, if you haven't seen 1917, I would strongly encourage you to see it uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and and definitely, it's, it's also because I agree with you, it is worth seeing on the big screen. It is a yeah. film that takes advantage of that experience. I mean, I got award screeners for 1917 and I just didn't watch them because I just yeah. didn't want to experience it that way. Yeah, much like Gravity, it's something that was just like created to be seen on the big screen. Yeah, and the only way I kind of can see myself like picking up like the 4K of 1917 is if there's like a like a audio commentary or like a making of documentary or something that like tells yeah. me how they made it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, um, you know, moving into the Oscar race. So 1917 has kind of pulled ahead as the front runner, and, and you posted a great article today about why it is now the Oscar front runner. And uh, you are not alone in this belief. Uh, Mark Harris over at Vanity Fair also sees 1917 as the front runner for Best Picture. Um, and honestly, I would not be upset with that choice. Like, is it like my obviously no. my choice for Best Picture is Parasite. But I'm not going to be like, 
I can't find myself getting mad at, at 1917, which I think is a really good film. It's a really well-made film. It's a film that's about getting people into the, into the theater, which I think is important for Hollywood. Um, and I think it's not, I think it's a film that tries to do something different. It doesn't feel like I've seen 1917 before. Um, and I, I think that that should all be recognized. Um, so I, I have really no problem with it being the front runner right now. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird thing. I mean, it, it, just to kind of briefly recap, the reason it's the front runner um, is precursor awards. So you look at, as Matt said at the top of the podcast, you look at uh, the Producers Guild Awards. I think eight of the last 10 winners of the Producers Guild Award went on to win Best Picture. Uh, the two deviations were La La Land won the PGA instead of Moonlight, and The Big Short won the PGA instead of Spotlight. Uh, Spotlight, that's right. Um, but other than that, it, it's the most reliable indicator of what's going to win Best Picture. And it's also a preferential ballot as voted on by industry professionals. So that kind of gives you an idea of like, what is the industry at large feeling right now? What are they, uh, you know, eager for and what are they most excited about? And what film is, is landing towards the top of those lists? I also feel like it has momentum. I mean, it won those two Golden Globes, um, which the Globes in and of themselves don't mean anything, but that boosts the visibility of the film. And because there's such a short uh, window between when uh, nominations were announced and when voting closes, this is the movie that people are talking about right now. There's really not a lot of runway left for another film to come in and take over that narrative. Yeah. Nor um, is there really enough room for a counter narrative to take hold. There's not enough no. room for like a, you know, 1917 is actually pro World War One to, to it, start get people chatting. It's secretly racist. Um, None of that is happening. Uh, By the way, that secretly racist one is just, just Adam just made that up. That's not actually something yes. that people are saying about 1970. At least I don't think it is. But. No, I don't think so. And honestly, like the, the Oscar season this year has been fairly tame in terms of. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's again, the speed of it has allowed it to be fairly tame. There's been no room for narratives to take hold beyond like, oh, this is the like, like Renee Zellweger will win best actress for Judy. Like, that's it. Like, that's that's all the room. Yeah. That's all the narrative room you have. Yeah. And all the movies are pretty agreeable this year. I mean, even something like Joker, which may be divisive among critics, like the industry loves it. Like all of the actors love it. Filmmakers love it. Uh, there's no like green book where it's like, this is genuinely a problematic film. And like it would be wrong for a twin best picture. Uh, there's no, there are no narratives like that taking hold. Um, and that works in 1917's favor. It works against the favor of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the Irishman, which both, I think kind of peaked a little early um, and, and so couldn't really sustain the momentum. Uh, and I don't know, we'll see, I, I, you know, there's, there's always room for surprises. Although at this point it feels like if there's going to be a surprise, it's going to be parasite because that movie won the ACE editing award um, where it was up against the Irishman and Joker and once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, and it also won the SAG award for best ensemble, which is not a super reliable predictor of best picture success. Um, I mean, three billboards won the SAG award, Black Panther won the SAG award, uh, but it still shows their strong support for that film. Um, all that being said, back when I saw 1917 at the end of November, I came out of it thinking like, well, that's an Oscar movie. Like it's a movie you come away from, uh, you know, if you liked it, which most people did, uh, just feeling like, wow, what, what a rush. And like, what, what a cinematic achievement, what a great thing right. to be seen in theaters and also what a technical marvel like look at what great filmmaking can accomplish and can do and, and it's very obviously so and i don't say that to denigrate 1917 because i think something like parasite is equally as magnificent in its filmmaking ambition it's just more invisible 
It's more right. Simple. Like with 1917, you're like, oh, they actually had to to build that you know ruined village. Like they had to yep. build the thing because the thing isn't actually there. We had to build that parasite. You could see it and not know that they had to build that house. Yeah. You know, but they did. <laughs> and yes. like that production design matters. Um, but and like the, the subtle editing of Parasite, the way it's edited, the way it's shot, the way the, mm-hmm. the composition, all of that is subtle. All of that is reinforcing. Which is not, which think, is not jive well with an academy that likes to recognize most. No. And I think one of the most underrated uh, pieces of filmmaking of the year, I think, is the, uh, well, two, I guess, the editing in Little Women, which I think is a little more obvious, but the cinematography and marriage story and the way that those frames reinforce um, the faces of the actors in that film and, and work towards the emotions that are overflowing throughout that movie. Um, but it's subtle work. I mean, it's just to someone who's not really paying attention or to someone who doesn't want to pay attention. It's just like, yeah, it's Adam driver's face in the camera, but there's a lot of thought put behind like, what kind of lens are we using? How big should the face be on the screen? Um, you know, where, how are we framing up the face in relation to the next shot that's coming after or the shot that came before that's all subtle work. And that's not something that the Academy tends to go for. Well, let's also be honest. The marriage story probably obliterated its chances when Adam driver says, fuck the space. <laughs> Said, about what? LA. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck this. He, he he said what about yeah. our city? How dare yeah, he? Maybe, maybe that's what tanked Marriage Story's chances. The anti the anti Los Angeles sentiment <laughs> of it. Oh, what a bummer! Because that movie's brilliant. That movie's uh, brilliant. But whatever. I mean, the thing about the Academy that you can't really rely on about the Academy, and I think it's important to remember, is that you have a th- you you literally have a category called Best Picture, but in practice. No film that is animated, a documentary, or foreign has ever won that category in, what, 90 years now? (laughs) So, you know, to sort of pinpoint is like, well, they recognize the best film. I'm like, but do they? (laughs) So (laughs) this notion, like now now they could could finally break that streak this year and reward Parasite, but I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. Like, I think... As much as I love Parasite, I just don't think the Academy is going to go for it. I think it's an insular town. I think even though the, the 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 body has diversified, I think you could see... I think the film obviously is going to win Best International Feature. It might win Best Director. But even if it picked up those two, I still don't think that's enough. As can you consider that last year, Cuarón won International, Director, and Cinematography. And they're like, no, but Green Book is better than Roma. Yeah. So, like, I, I, I just feel like Parasite could upset but i feel like 1917 checks all the boxes that the academy wanted to check yeah and it's the most it's just very obvious it's and the that's most why i think that's why i think mendes has a very serious shot at winning best director um yes. again he won for american beauty um because it is such a a bold cinematic achievement like at face value you don't have to do a lot of work to say like oh that's good directing um where so i don't know it seems like we're denigrating the academy and we are but i just what i don't want to happen and if you're listening to this right now if you're like if you're not the biggest 1917 fan that's totally fine um if you think another film is better i just if you think i'm with you i think bong joon ho should win best director for parasite i'm with you but if sam mendez wins i'm not going to be like well 1917's a piece of shit <laughs> like yeah. that to me is where oh, that that is to me one of the worst things that award season does is it creates a backlash not based on what you think about a film but by putting movies into a competitive framework it causes you to lash out at a film that won because your favorite didn't win and that's just a that's a bad way to approach art i can be perfectly fine like 
I like Parasite more than I like 1917, but like it's a, it's a fucking game, folks. It's a it's a game that's as Adam has pointed out, has all the substance of a high school popularity contest. Like it's, it's don't, don't hate movies because of the, of of the Academy Awards. That's what I will say. Yeah. And as we've discussed, quality always outs, you know, the, the films that are remembered are not the ones that won, but the ones that were genuinely great, whether they won or not. Um, But I, you know, I personally think 1970 is pretty cool. I think it's a cool movie. I think the technical achievement is really astounding. I would watch a, four or five hour documentary about how the movie was made gladly. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. I agree that the, I think there were better directed films this year, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be upset that Sam Mendes won. Like I can understand it. I can understand Sam Mendes winning best director for, um, 1917. Yeah. It, it makes sense to me because it's, very clearly, you know, oh, it's a really tough cinematic achievement. We can all understand that. I cannot understand Green Book winning Best Original Screenplay. Right. Adapted Screenplay or whatever. Fuck. <laughs> that doesn't make it. That does not compute. Right. Or Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Editing. Does not compute. Right. Exactly. Like, the, the, the points you get upset is, like, if it, if it, like, if there's, like, I don't agree with this choice, but I understand. When it moves past the point of understanding is then when you can get a little mad online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... How are you feeling about uh, old Sam Mendes there? Uh, have you always been a Sam Mendes fan? I think Sam Mendes is as good as the script that he gets. So yeah. I feel like Sam Mendes has all the tools. I feel he has all the skills to give you a great film. But as a storyteller, I don't think Sam Mendes necessarily can differentiate between like a good story and a bad story. I think he is like very focused on the, on the visuals and the style and how he's going to make it come to life. But I don't think he has the wherewithal to be like, oh, this needs work or this isn't the right story to tell. So, and, and, and you can, and what's fascinating is you can sort of see those dichotomies in his work, like within the act, within the same filmmaker's work. So for instance, you have a film like Revolutionary Road, which is like a pair, like a, like a high school production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like it's really fucking bad. Um, both uh, Winslet and DiCaprio feel too young for their roles. Um, and they also like the drama, the melodrama is overwrought. It's just really freaking bad. And it doesn't feel like anything resembling a human relationship, which is why the only memorable part of that movie is Michael Shannon showing up to tell the two lead characters that they're bozos. Well, I also remember a certain image of Kate Winslet standing in her window, but for other reasons. Yes. (laughs) Because that's a pretty unforgettable image that Sam Mendes conjures there. Right. But then you go to Away We Go, which is, a, it's just, you know, it's more indie, it's more comedy, but it, it feels lived in about the kind of relationship that uh, John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph's characters have and the way that they, they bounce off each other and the way that they're preparing to be parents. And um, that feels lived in and real and immediate. And I, I really like Away We Go. You can also see it even more clearly in the fact that he made a, one of the best James Bond movies <laughs> followed by a really bad James Bond movie. Like yeah. Skyfall is amazing. Skyfall is like one of the best Bond films in the entire history of Bond, which is saying something. And it's it's really smart. It's well written. It's well directed. And then you get to Spectre, and Spectre is just limp. <laughs> Spectre has nothing. <laughs> Spectre yeah. is a bad story, and it just kind of like and it all falls apart from there. And so, you know, and people were like begging Sam Mendes to come back after Skyfall. Like you did such a good job. Keep the story going. And he did. And then, uh, <laughs> and yikes. And yikes. So my thing about Sam Mendes is not that I think he's like untalented or he doesn't have the tools, but I feel like, 
Like there's some directors like, I'm going to show up for whatever you do because I know you're probably going to hit it out of the park. I don't get that from Sam Mendes, but I will say like when, you know, he has the potential to always hit it out of the park. Yeah, that makes sense. What about American Beauty though? American Beauty has aged so badly. <laughs> I can't, I can't get over how badly American Beauty has aged. Um, I saw American Beauty when I was in high school, which is the right age to see it because you don't know any fucking better. Yeah. Um, but it's also a very much like a 1999 movie, not in the sense of like all the good movies that came out in 1999, but like the late nineties of like, Ooh, this is us being, you know, insightful. And really, you know, t- when you view it 20 years later, Every nothing about it really works. Like I mean, well, no. Let me take that back. Conrad Hall's cinematography is is still gorgeous, but the characters are so overwrought. The there's no insight into where these the the foibles are in these characters. The fact that it thinks that Kevin Spacey's character and he, this is removing Kevin Spacey from the equation. <laughs> like let's let's just put that in a box for a second and just talk about the character that he's playing. Um, there's no insight into the way that he is flawed. It thinks that he's a heroic character, a guy who has a midlife crisis and learns to take some chances and and sort of enrich himself, but he's still a really shitty person. And that's the problem is that the solution, his solution, the the film is framed. It's like, Oh, he thinks he wants to bang his daughter's friend, which gross, but, and then he's like, but no family is important. But I'm like, but look at all the other things you did along the way where you like he comes to a realization that family is important but he never does anything to show that his family is important. So for instance in the scene where he's like I bought a new car cuz I always wanted it and he's like I I rule and it's like oh and and Annette Benning is is rightly pissed because cars are expensive and he just <laughs> bought one to like saddle, which by the way this is a midlife crisis. This is not inspiring. It's just a fucking midlife crisis and a generic one at that. Um and the, what always gets me in that exchange is, isn't just that she's pissed that he bought a car, but then he tries to start making moves on her and then he gets his feet on the couch and she's like, oh, could you please not put your feet on the couch? And he's like, it's just a couch. So the, the material possessions she cares about are not important, but the material possessions he cares about are monumentally important. Fuck that movie. Fuck. <laughs> that's just <laughs> one way that movie sucks. Have you watched it recently? No. I, I saw I saw it like maybe about ten years ago, um, but the, every time I think about it, I just get angry. Maybe I should. I, mean, I own it. I own the film, but like it's on Netflix. So I, American Beauty gonna, podcast. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I was like you. I mean, you know, as a I was what I was I think I was thirteen when it came out. So like, yeah. And Katie Rich uh, from Vanity Fair did a really great Twitter thread about it as well, talking about, like, for us who were teenagers when it came out or, like, preteens or whatever, like, that was our high mark for, like, oh, this is what good art is. Like, this is what thoughtful film yeah, is. Yeah, what, what, this, yeah, this is art. Like, this is important movies. And it would, that was bolstered by the fact that it won Best Picture and Best Director. And Best uh, Actor. And best actor, yes. Yeah. So yeah, and then oh, now, and now when you throw in the Kevin Spacey of it all, <laughs> as a creepy, as a creepy older guy preying on younger people, that hasn't aged well at all, has it? <laughs> no, no. But it was like a huge fucking deal. Um, and then you know, Road to Perdition came out next, and it's arguably a better movie, but I think people were expecting something else. And yeah, uh, which again, Road to Perdition, beautifully shot. Yeah, and I haven't seen that movie in for I don't. I, I saw it when it came in theaters, and that's it. I never yeah. really had a desire to revisit it. 
I mean, he's a great visual filmmaker. He's always been, you know, he was working with Conrad Hall for his first couple of films right. and then the Deacon. So, you know, that's, and I think he that's... gets, and to be honest, I think he gets some really good scores out of Thomas Newman. I think his Road yeah. to Perdition score, his 1917 score, like he gets good work out of his, out of the people he works with. I, I just feel like sometimes he doesn't say like, oh, this script is bad. Yeah. The one that kind of broke me was Jarhead. I was like, what the fuck is this movie? I get the idea of Jarhead. I just hate it. <laughs> like the idea of like the idea of war as malaise. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But it's a sh- it's a it's a painful sit. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good story. It's not interesting. It's very boring. Well, you know, it is. It, it's it's a, it's actually, I think, a story worth telling. Like it's sort of there was this Onion article or like an Onion joke is sort of about like, you know, a realistic Call of Duty and a realistic Call of Duty is like just guys waiting around to for yeah. orders and like yes that is and so jarhead does speak to sort of the reality of modern warfare in that sense but it's sort of like i want to make a film about guys being bored and frustrated and i'm like you you nailed it <laughs> i can't <laughs> I, I mean you did what you set out to do so i can't fault you there but boy do i not want to sit through it yeah and it also felt like it was influenced by fight club but didn't really understand mm. that had that kind of take on masculinity right but yeah i don't know I saw it in theaters. I was super excited for it. And I was like, this is boring. Yeah. That's really boring. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, 1917 is, is looking like your, your front runner right now for, for best picture. And so, um, now just a quick programming note before we move on to recently watched, um, we will not have a podcast early in the next week because we're about to go to Sundance. And now usually what we do is we do like a Sundance preview, but we don't want to sort of do two Sundance podcasts back to back where we're like, here's a preview. And here's what we saw. So we're just going to tell you what we saw in the next episode. And like, that'll just be the episode. And then the week after that will be our Oscar predictions. Oscar time. But yeah, we'll hopefully be seeing lots of good movies next week. Um, and thus won't be recording a podcast. Yes. But, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter, obviously, for all our reactions. And obviously, keep stay tuned to Collider.com because we'll be posting a ridiculous amount of reviews. So, like, yes. there will be reviews for, like, Promising Young Woman and um, a lot of other stuff that's worth seeing. Downhill and Wendy. Yeah. Stuff worth seeing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's move on to Recently Watched. What have you seen lately? So I have been chugging along watching the Bond movies that I haven't seen, and I was uh, going to discuss Thunderball, but then uh, I told Matt that I had also rewatched Thor The Dark World, and in telling him why, I decided I should probably talk about that one. Uh, I had some feeling, I don't know why, that Thor The Dark World was kind of underrated. Uh, Whenever people were talking about how, you know, oh, it's one of the worst Marvel movies, I was like, ah, there's some fun stuff in it. I don't think it's that bad. Um, And I rewatched it, and it is garbage. Um, it's a very bad movie and I rewatched it because it's on Disney plus. It's just sitting there. And when Malekith is sitting there on Disney plus begging to be watched, you watch Malekith, the iconic Marvel villain. Um, almost as iconic as Caecilius. Almost as iconic as Caecilius. They're the same damn person. <laughs> I'm convinced. Uh, and it's what I found interesting about Thor the Dark World is that I think it's the only time that Marvel has made a big swing on something and has completely missed because it's so very clearly supposed to be this gritty Game of Thrones-esque Thor movie and none of it works. Um, they hired Alan Taylor to direct it, who is a veteran TV director. He directed a lot of The Sopranos, but also directed a lot of Game of Thrones. Um, the cinematography is just really ugly and dark. Like, it's it's hard to see things. Um 
And the movie is just really boring. Like Thor himself is boring. All that levity that Taika Waititi brought to the character in Thor Ragnarok, um, it's not there. Even the levity that was in the Kenneth Branagh movie is not there. Uh, it's just really mired in the muck of trying to be this fantasy, but not even like a fun fantasy, just like a really self-serious fantasy movie. Um, and like I remember, like you know, they shot in Iceland on like the black. Uh, surface or whatever, but then they just like CG'd the sky. So then it's like, why are you in Iceland? Like, what is the whole, what is the entire purpose of going there then? If you're just going to CG the entire environment. Um, there's some Loki stuff that's fun, but I can guarantee you all of that was stuff that Joss Whedon came in and rewrote um, because the production got in trouble. Joss Whedon came in and wrote some new scenes uh, featuring Loki um, because this was, so they were shooting it after the Avengers came, like while the Avengers was coming out and when audiences went, uh, you know, Gaga for Loki in that movie, they decided to add more Loki into Thor The Dark World. Um, and originally the movie was supposed to be directed by Patty Jenkins, and she left over a difference of vision with Marvel, and turns out she was probably right. Uh, but yeah, if you're wondering if Thor The Dark World is kind of underrated, uh, you are wrong. I'm here to tell you you are wrong, because I was wrong. Uh, save for Cat Dating saying Meow Meow, and the kind of fun of the interdimensional portals in the third act, uh, the movies are real bad. Yeah, it feels like the worst consequences of a Mar- of Marvel not being entirely certain how to move on after the Avengers. Yeah, like how do we how do we do Phase Two? Was sort exactly, of, and you can see that. Like, I think it, it's better realized in Iron Man Three by just not giving a shit. Yeah, but Thor: The Dark World really kind of collapses, and those both came out in 2013. So, and then the other thing is sort of the consequences of the Marvel creative. Um, Oh yeah, the Marvel Creative Committee. Committee and their bad decisions. So, um, you know, it's you know it's funny because like you just kind of don't have to worry about that anymore now. You know, also although I will say Thor: The Dark World has the distinction as the first movie. No, sorry, second. Basically, because the shit falling out of the sky worked in Avengers, they would use <laughs> it again in Thor: The Dark World, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and Guardians of the Galaxy, and Avengers: Age of Ultron. That was the climax of all those movies, is some big yes. shit falling out of the sky. Yes. And it was bad. Yeah. So, it got old real fast. It got old very, very fast. <laughs> um, by the way, fun fact, the way Thor wins in Thor the Dark World is he just throws spears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. He's just, he's just like, all he had to do is just throw a couple, throw a few spears at Malekith and he wins. It doesn't make sense, because then it like sends Malekith to like another dimension, but he's still there, like alive, and then just by happenstance, his ship falls through the porthole into that dimension and falls on him, and that's the end. Yeah, that makes like, sense. Like, it's just very, like, sure. Sure, why not? This is fine. <laughs> this will be fine. Um, so, yeah, so for my recently watched, uh, today is actually, we're recording on uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so I decided to, to watch a, a documentary I've been meaning to get around to on HBO uh, called King in the Wilderness, uh, which documents the final years of King's life. So um, it basically goes from the signing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to King's death in 1968. And it's a really fascinating look because I think the, the Martin Luther King Jr. that we get today is uh, a, a writer I follow called Adam Serwer. He kind of said we kind of treat King like a Hallmark card. And I think that's true. I think that by sort of relegating him to a day and sort of not focus and his sort of message of nonviolence has really been sort of perverted into non-confrontation and just none of these things that King actually stood for. Um, but they make white people comfortable 
And so I wanted to kind of learn a bit more about King's final years. And, and it's an interesting documentary. I would say the direction of it is kind of flat and whatever. Uh, it's very straightforward. But basically the director just talks to King's closest friends to sort of learn about what he was going through at the time. And, and historically, King was sort of fight. He, you can sort of see a guy that was spread too thin because he was being pressured to speak out against the Vietnam War. He was... Um, being pressured uh, by the rise of the Black Power Movement, which advocated violence. Um, and he was obviously, you know, a proponent of nonviolence. And then also he wanted to combat poverty because he saw he was his big uh, fight was against injustice and he saw poverty as the manifestation of economic injustice. And so, you know, he was doing things like he was going to slums in Chicago. And there's a scene where they talk about how the racism in Chicago was far more intense than anything they had encountered down south and far more surprising. Um, and it was just it was really, you know, and then when he spoke out against Vietnam War, you know, the people were like, stick to civil rights, which like they weren't <laughs> thrilled when he was talking about civil rights either. So, you know, it, it's really fascinating. I think, you know, there's this this, you know reform there's this attempt to sort of rewrite history that Martin Luther King Jr. was always accepted and everyone always welcomed him his message uh, and that's patently untrue is that King was you know among the white community and therefore the mainstream in America uh, King was incredibly unpopular uh, and what he was fighting for was unpopular because it challenged the status quo. And if you don't fucking believe me, look at how angry people got when Colin Kaepernick kneeled <laughs> to protest police violence. Because yeah. any form of nonviolent protest, it's not the fact that it's nonviolent. They don't care about that. Uh, they just said, don't upset the status quo. Because we're, you know, the worst thing for white people is to be told that they're doing something bad and that they might need to change. Um, anyway, that's not to say that nothing has changed or that King didn't affect any change. Obviously he did, but the fight is still ongoing. Um, so I would say it's a, it's a worthwhile documentary. Again, it's on, it's on HBO. You can check it out right now. Uh, it's called King in the Wilderness. It's also a nice reminder that, uh, Ava DuVernay's Selma is incredible. It is. It is incredible. Um, all right. Uh, so, uh, with that, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.